Hey everybody, this is your host, Matt Castellini, and welcome to Chicago Capital. Jason, thank you so much for hopping on Chicago Capital. It is a true honor to have you here. I think you're the first guest I have who is originally from the great town of Omaha. So this is a special day. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the chance to connect. So I'd love to kind of walk through your background a little bit. Could you talk to us about, you know, the early beginnings of your career and some of the major sort of steps and, you know, places you went along the way? Sure. Yeah. So again, grew up in Omaha and my father was a serial entrepreneur that built various technology companies focused on kind of the agricultural and and farming industries in the Midwest. And so early accounting systems for farms and things like that. And uh, spent a lot of my time working for him, helping him with that business, crawling around the rafters, literally of of barns running Ethernet cable and and helping in the early days of installing computer systems systems and agribusinesses. And so, you know, that really gave me an interesting window into both, you know, technology, you know, that was uh, kind of the dawn of the PC era, kind of leading into the internet era. Um, I was kind of a beta tester for a lot of the software that my dad wrote. He basically would give me stuff and say, try to break it. So I was, I was around entrepreneurship and technology kind of all while growing up. And it was only natural that I, you know, went on to school to study technology and business and, and, and go on to get involved in the startups. So, yeah. What was that experience like, you know, being a computer science major in the early nineties, I feel like there was so much change happening and, you know, so many uh, different avenues you could have gone. It was an interesting time. I'm, I'm probably going to date myself horribly with my silly stories, but you know, I remember when they were first the first class on how to use email and how to use the internet, and you know, all of the typical stories of the hacks that you could use to spoof emails and make you know fake phone calls and all of that stuff in the early days where everything was command line. And by the time I graduated, the first browser had been launched, and I went to go work for Anderson, now Accenture, you know, in kind of what was their new internet and web group and all of that. So the timing was was a blast because I started with traditional Pascal and, and then wound up right when I graduated in 94, kind of when the internet was really taking off and, and being kind of one of the early folks to even know what the web was and, and how to use a web browser and, and make web pages and stuff. Yeah. So I, I guess that leads into kind of some of your experiences at Accenture, any kind of formative projects or tasks that you took on there that that you think informed your decision later on to, you know, be an investor uh, one day as yeah. opposed to, uh, you know, working at a large tech company or starting, you know, a large major tech company, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, at Accenture, we were building business systems for Fortune 500 companies. So we weren't exactly out creating the next Google or the next next Facebook. But what we were doing, and again, in 94, I walked in and they they literally, there was nothing special about me. Our office didn't have like a web group yet. So they, they literally said the next three people that walk through, they're going to be our internet group for the Denver office. And so I spent a lot of time over the next decade, you know, taking legacy systems and in boring industries like telecom and insurance and putting web wrappers around them and building some of the first systems that allowed you to order insurance and pay your phone bill and do all of that stuff online. So, you know, again, they were pretty core business systems versus anything exciting that went on to be, you know, uh, an amazing dot-com story or anything like that. It was that 
core experience in using the technology, which which really kind of caused me before I really understood anything about the investing side to leave in the late 90s with a couple of guys and start, you know, a dot com startup as part of that boom and and be involved in several startups prior to going back to grad school. So, you know, certainly that foundation in using the technology is what caused us to believe that we could build something cool. And it was an amazing time in the late 90s, you know, the run up to the dot-com bust, which that part wasn't as fun, but it was certainly a wild ride through the 90s of kind of being there at the beginning when the first browser was was developed and how that could be used in various ways. And then building some companies, you know, one that got caught up in the dot-com bust and one that post-bust went on to a lot of success and was acquired by a public company. So I was like to say pre-MBA, I had a batting average of 500, one, one win and one loss. But that was, uh, that was more than anything, a huge learning experience. And what led me to VC was kind of living through it on the startup side and seeing how being venture-backed works and seeing the guys across the table that were the investors and working with them, et cetera, et cetera. And so it sounds like, you know, you intentionally kind of use the booth experience to get your foot in the door at, in venture capital. You know, you'd had yeah. sort of your early stage startup experience and you knew you wanted to make the switch and use booth to do that. Back in that, I guess that's around 2005, 2007 timeframe, I would imagine there was not as many paths to venture capital like there is today. You know, today it seems like people come from all different backgrounds and different sort of entryways. But, but what was it like, you know, breaking into VC back then? Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, as most people that go through entrepreneurship uh, in one form or another, ignorance was kind of bliss, right? I didn't go back to get my MBA because I was like, that's the path to get venture capital. My whole reason for going back to getting my MBA is as a tech guy that spent six odd years in various startups, you know, it made me realize how much I didn't know about the business side of things. And so, you know, I was leading development teams and building technology and, and learning kind of how the venture side worked by being exposed to it and really had, you know, very little knowledge of how it actually worked. I only knew what questions I was being asked in board meetings and how I needed to respond to try to keep the guys that were writing the checks happy, et cetera. And so I was, I was trying to demystify a process that I thought was really cool. And when I went to Booth, you know, I really just focused on how venture capital works so that I could, whether I was going to do it as an entrepreneur or a VC, so that I could be much smarter about it the next time, because I just felt that there was so much that I didn't know when I was an entrepreneur about how all that stuff worked. And then it just so happened that the, the, the more I got down the rabbit hole, the more my, you know, I could go do another startup or I could go into venture capital, the more the road diverged into venture capital. And I really focused on that and then wound up doing that post-graduation. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about some of those first early roles that you had in venture capital and I guess some of the sectors that you covered and, you know, now you are very well established as, you know, consumer brand investor, I think maybe among some other interests, but it seems like that's your main area of focus is consumers. Yeah. So we'd just love to hear kind of how that passion, interest, area of expertise really developed over the years. Well, and it's very interesting because I started out, you know, first decade of my career, I was a tech guy, right? And how my first experience in venture capital in between my first and second year of Booth, I actually got an internship 
you know, with a Silicon Valley firm and spent the summer on Sand Hill Road, you know, learning traditional venture capital, looking mostly at tech businesses and all of that. And it was just a fantastic experience. And, and the folks that opened the door for me to have that internship probably is what allowed me to finally have something on my resume and do everything since then. The interesting twist was, is that my wife, when I was getting my MBA, was going through medical school and she landed her dream job here in Chicago. And so I went from this amazing internship in Silicon Valley to, I really need to find a, a job in Chicago. So now it was, you know, can you get into this venture capital industry that's so hard to get into? And now I layered on top of that, can you also now find a job in Chicago where there's, you know, obviously, especially 15 years ago, a lot fewer jobs than there are in Silicon Valley. And so I just basically, and I tell this story at kind of the booth career nights, I basically just made a list of every venture capitalist that I could find in Chicago and then flagged all of those who were booth alumni and, you know, started doing the typical, you know, can I buy a cup of coffee? And I'd love to hear your story. And, you know, before there's these fancy podcasts, just, you know, sitting down one-on-one with folks and trying to learn how they got in. And um, that's actually how I wound up getting the summer internship and then wound up getting connected to Winona Capital where I went in Chicago. And so it was, it was interesting. I was, I was literally, I would sit down with anybody who would give me five minutes and especially anybody who would actually interview me for a job. So here I was talking to these guys. It was more middle market, private equity. It was consumer focused. They were literally looking at me like, you're an early stage tech guy. You know, what are you doing here? And I was like, well, you said you'd interview me, right? And they said, okay, well, we're looking for marketers, brand builders, why on earth would we hire you? And, you know, just, I guess, quick thinking or a little bit lucky in terms of what I came up with is I asked them the question. I said, well, you know, when you're investing in these consumer businesses, you know, do they want to get onto the web? You know, this was still when wholesale was king and DTC, that whole phase kind of hadn't kicked in yet, 2007. And I said, yeah, most of our companies are talking about getting on the web. I'm like, great. You know, are most of the companies as they're growing, you know, migrating, into you know the next tier of IT systems and automating their processes and the partners at Winona were like yeah that you know that's something that we definitely need to do as part of adding value and then I just said well do you have anybody on your team that understands any of that and they kind of looked at the floor a little bit and said well no we're all brand guys I said well that's why you should hire me and for whatever you know it, it worked and so they offered me a job and you know I really had multiple hats that I wore when I was first at Winona I was kind of that internal consultant guy that could parachute in and be an interim e-commerce guy or IT guy or whatever all while I was also wearing the hat of being on the investment team and sourcing deals and due diligence and then you know as I was there, obviously, our core focus was building consumer brands. So I got completely immersed in that side of the business and learned from some amazing people that had built brands previously and some brands that we built. So I got thrown into the deep end in terms of brand building and the power of the brand. And so those three hats kind of shifted over time. 
And me being the e-commerce IT guy started to take a secondary position to the brand building because really could see what these guys were doing in terms of the power of building a brand and the impact that that can have in terms of creating value for the company and for the team and for the investors. And so over the course of a decade of doing that at a mid-market private equity firm, I really kind of was transformed into a brand builder. And that's where I am now is, is I can, I can certainly with my background in technology, I can hold my own in terms of talking about the tactics and, and the trends and all of that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, whether it's because of the power of the brand or where I've spent my time, you know, my focus really now is first and foremost, building amazing brands. And that's why we focus on what we focus on versus looking for, for tech companies. Yeah, and I guess that's that's a great segue into company first. And you know, I'd love it if you could talk about, you know, the origin story behind the firm and what you've already hit on it a little bit, but what really differentiates the folks at company first from, you know, other consumer investors or just, you know, venture capital firms in general. Would love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, well, I mean, it's important to kind of understand where I was coming from. You know, the private equity firm that I worked at had 300 million under management. You know, we were generally looking to invest in businesses that had 10 million or maybe even 50 million in revenue. We were looking to acquire a majority stake, write pretty significant checks. We would spend a lot of time as kind of the sourcing aspect of my role, spend a lot of time pounding the payment at trade shows, trying to look at what are the trends, the up and coming businesses. And so by default, I was meeting a ton of emerging brands. And, you know, we had very strict criteria in terms of the private equity firm. And I would meet all these wonderful companies that were too early, too small, can't write a big enough check, can't own a big enough percentage. And I would do what I could to refer them to folks that would write smaller checks invested earlier stages, but that universe and consumer, especially 10 years ago, was really quite small. You know, the, the you can throw a rock in Silicon Valley and hit somebody that'll invest in an early stage technology startup. But if you're starting a healthier snack company or a, a functional beverage company, it's it's just a different universe. And so at Winona, I would meet all of these companies and you would try to to help them out, hoping that when they are bigger, when they are raising the bigger the, the bigger amount of, of money, that that they would you know karma would come back and we'd be able to participate in the next round. And what wound up happening is the best businesses, and you would know them, you would know that these are going to be great businesses, would just completely leapfrog us, and we'd never have a chance. I mean, the the list is it's almost embarrassing. The Skinny Pops, the RX Bars, Crave Jerky, Reverb, you know, all of these companies that we because of our connection and the trade shows we were going to. And because a lot of them were Chicago based, we knew very early on and it was heartbreaking to say, well, call us back when you have 10 million of revenue. And they would just kind of chuckle and be like, this is your chance. You're either in now or, or you're not going to have it. And so I really loved what I was doing at a bigger firm, but I just felt the restrictions were preventing us from going after a lot of these wonderful opportunities. And so I eventually moved down market. And I initially did that by going to work for Circle Up, which is a crowd was a crowdfunding platform specifically focused on consumer. Um, and I did that for a while. Um, I was commuting from Chicago to San Francisco, and that commute was fun. And then the needle tips and eventually flying to San Francisco and being away from your family every year, week or, or, or so. You just can't do it forever. 
And I'd always wanted to start my own firm someday. And I had felt that I kind of bookended the experiences between the crowdfunding and do, doing truly early stage, you know, pre-revenue in some cases, and the, the, the more private equity type deals. And I saw Company First as an opportunity to kind of bridge the gap between those two. And so taking a playbook right out of the mid-market firm I was working for, the consumer, the thesis, the categories, the potential for growth and exit, just where Winona would start at 10 million and up, we basically literally said company first is 10 million and below. And so we love to catch emerging brands, work with them in those kind of more formative stages and invest early, but also invest across rounds so we can help get them to that point where they're at 10, 20, 50, 100 million in revenue and the world is really opens up for them. And so, you know, it's very exciting for me as somebody who's spent, you know, a lot of time on the other side as an looking to acquire those businesses to know kind of what those folks are looking for and kind of know where the goalposts are to then work with those companies at the earlier stages in those consumer categories where I've built up a lot of expertise and be able to kind of help them work, you know, down that path. Yeah. So which, I guess, which consumer categories do you feel like uh, you've spent the most time analyzing over the years? I, I think you touched on a few, but uh, would love to hear kind of, you know, the areas that you like to invest in the most. Yeah. You know, we, we go from traditional products on shelves to kind of retail to what we call tech enablement of the shopping experience. And so, you know, for us, our core is really the products. And within those products, the big three or four industries are food, beverage, personal care, and apparel. And so, you know, those are areas where I think there's very clear trends. I think there's a lot of really interesting innovation and entrepreneurship going on. It's an area where my team and I have spent a lot of time. So it's areas where we can add value. And there's also very clear ways to see what's going on in that industry, right? So for the food and beverage space, for example, there's a series of trade shows throughout the year that unfortunately have been harder to go to with COVID going on. But, you know, you can pound a, 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 the pavement at a trade show every couple of months and be more plugged into the industry than you could ever imagine. You can see everything that's going on. You can meet hundreds, if not thousands of companies over a three or four day period. And, you know, everybody, when we were pitching our fund, everybody wants to know, you know, sourcing, how do you get your deals? You know, in Silicon Valley, it's, you've got this wonderful name, your Kleiner Perkins and the companies beat a path to, to your door. Well, we're a small firm in Chicago so that's not going to happen for us. We have to kind of make that pipeline appear for us. And so we do that the same way I did it at a mid-market firm, which is going to these trade shows, passing out, you know, a thousand business cards a week and getting to know as many companies as you can. And that is an amazing way to get plugged into an industry and see what the trends are and have an amazing pipeline of opportunities. So whenever we were pitching our fund and people would ask us the pipeline, question, we would always just kind of chuckle because we knew how strong our pipeline was because we knew our method was different than Silicon Valley. We weren't relying on, you know, having a, a big name that everybody was, you know, going up and down Sand Hill Road, you know, pounding on our door. We knew how to make that happen. And so it is very different, but it's it's amazing because the consumer industry, especially some of these 
verticals like food and beverage, it's an unbelievable community. I mean, the entrepreneurs all help each other. That's very collaborative. The investors all work together. Community is the absolute key word there. And it's really cool to be a part of it and see it happen. Um, and I'm excited with COVID kind of waning that the trade shows are starting up again. I never thought I'd say it, but I miss going to trade shows and miss kind of seeing your friends and meeting new people and all of that. And it's just, it's a, it's a wealth of opportunities for us when we can go to those trade shows. Yeah. And I have to imagine you get to do a lot of taste testing during your course of business. <laughs> you don't, during those trade shows, you don't sit down and eat an actual meal for about a three day period. You're just grazing and sampling and most of it's healthier food. So it's not too bad, but, but it is, it is, uh, it's a pretty amazing thing. And, you know, obviously with COVID that's been even harder for these trade shows because it's just, it's one giant, you know, food sampling event. And that, you know, was completely shut down when COVID happened. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting to hear you kind of describe the sectors you invest in. I, most of my experience has been honestly in more B2B SaaS or consumer SaaS applications, but I have now seen a few kind of consumer brand companies come across my desk. And I think a hard transition to make is, you know, I think that for B2B SaaS, there's a lot of well-defined metrics and benchmarks that companies need to hit by series A, by, you know, seed or, you know, to get to series A fundraise. But when I look at, you know, a retail sort of a brand that's, you know, being sold at retailers, they're on the shelf and that's great. They've developed partnerships and their, you know, their logos are going up and they're getting in more, more supermarkets. But I think that next step is the one I'm, you know, still sort of trying to get better at is, understanding, you know, what metrics should I be looking at for some of these retail brands? Like, how should I be evaluating them compared to others? And any kind of insights you might have selfishly would be very much appreciated. Yeah. And that's precisely why we stay within our lane, right? Because, you know, we know those metrics. And this is exactly why we also don't have kind of a, we don't set a minimum revenue threshold, right? Because we know what those metrics are. If you're a DTC business, there's one set of metrics. If you're wholesale, there's a different set of metrics. And we really kind of want to see what the traction is. And we know the drill in terms of how you should build those companies up. You know, if somebody comes to me with a SaaS or a crypto or something like that, you know, it could sound cool, but I don't, I don't know any reference points in terms of, you know, I'm not looking at those deals like like I'm looking at food and beverage deals all day long. And so when people talk to me about what their velocity rates are and their sell through and their, their, the number of doors that they're in, um, when they talk to me about customer acquisition costs, average order volumes and cohort analysis and all of that, you know, these are the tools that we use specifically to look at consumer businesses. And, you know, you have to have reference points to compare things to. You know, I think a, a lot of folks in my industry, there's a lot of smart people in my industry. I like to think that I'm pretty sharp at what I do, but you know, it's so much more about having the data and the reference points than it is I can magically sense that this is going to be like the next big company, right? Because, you know, we look at three or 400 deals a year in order to do two or three deals per quarter. And it's looking at all those deals that gives me the perspective. And it's going to those trade shows that give me that perspective. When I look at one more food deal or one more beverage deal, I have something to compare it to and I have the ability to, to weigh in on what is good or bad about that deal versus just, do I like the product or does the technology seem fancy or, or something like that? And in fact, that's an advice that I give a lot of entrepreneurs that come to us 
you know, when they're really early in the process, as I say, go to the trade shows and walk the aisles because for entrepreneurs as well, they will learn so much about what's going on in the industry. And they'll say, oh, well, I, I, I've, I've kind of walked the halls of the grocery store. And I say, that's the tip of the iceberg. That shows you what's in now. That doesn't show you the other 90% of the companies that are trying to get on the shelf. And so everything that we do between the trade shows, the focus, all of that stuff is to give us an edge in terms of, of looking at those specific types of deals. And that's why we focus on you know, the, the set of categories that we focus on. No, that's so interesting. What are some of the big trade shows that you frequent each year in case people are interested, in case investors yeah. are interested or food entrepreneurs listening are interested? Yeah, I mean, for food and beverage, the biggest one of the year is is Expo West that's in March in, in Anaheim. And it is just, you know, it used to be the Anaheim Convention Center and it's taken over all the nearby hotels and it's about a week long deal. And, you know, its focus is on the more healthier, better for you, natural, organic, et cetera. Um, but that's where the trends are, right? I mean, there's still a good case to be made for the indulgent uh, treat here and there, but really the trends, and you can see this in throughout our portfolio is, you know, better for you, better for the world products, um, healthier options, um, cleaner labels. And so this trade show is really a focus on natural, organic, and better for you products. And it's it's just massive. They've got kind of the, the fall one on the East Coast called Expo East, um, but that's uh, it's much smaller than Expo West. Expo West is, is the big trade show that you want to go to in the food space. And then there's a bunch of them throughout the year, fancy food and, and, and some other um, specific, whether it's regional ones or niche ones based on, you know, if you want to go to a trade show that's just all about kombucha, there's an entire trade show for kombucha or CBD or whatever it is. So you could really go to trade shows in the food space nonstop. And then all the other categories, you know, the pet industry has has a couple of key ones. The apparel has has some key ones, the outdoor space, um, outdoor retailer and stuff. So, you know, again, it's just different than traditional venture capital where they have a thesis and then they advertise their thesis and then, you know, the companies all vie for their attention. For us, we're out there kind of figuring out what companies we want to talk to and getting our name out there so that when people are raising capital, that we're on their list of people that they want to talk to about investing in their rounds. Awesome. We will link some of those events in the show notes so people can learn more about them. Thanks so much for that. I wanted to switch gears a little bit to an area that I'm, you know, I know is one of particular interest to you, and that's DTC. And I think it's been such a hot segment, hot channel over the past five, six, maybe even longer years. And I think it's a pretty interesting time for direct-to-consumer companies right now. And please feel free at any point uh, to correct me if some of my understanding or definitions around DTC, there's sometimes I see multiple kind of iterations on what it actually means at the end of the day. But I think my perspective is that, you know, it's, it's vertically integrated. It's typically online only, but that is actually changing quite a bit, which almost turns the model on its head a little bit, I suppose. But I just would love to hear kind of your prognosis for the state of direct-to-consumer right now. Because I think if you look at sort of how Casper has fared in the public markets, if you look at, you know, Warby Parker, not exactly having a terrible year, but, you know, they're definitely placing more of an emphasis now on those physical stores and on physical locations. So I just think there's been a lot of interesting trends that people probably couldn't have predicted a few years ago. And so I'm curious about your take on where that, you know, channel is right now. Well, you know, for better or worse, no one's ever complained that I wasn't able to give 
my opinion on things. And DTC is kind of one of those hot buttons for me. And it is interesting, you know, having kind of again, grown up as a technology guy in the 90s. And the company that we started, you know, in 99 was very similar to what Shopify is now. So very front row seat to kind of seeing how this has evolved from when the first browser was created. And I know a lot of people, you know, feel like the DTC started around 2010. And I think that really the original DTC businesses really started in the 90s, you know, and what was interesting is because of the way that the web evolved, it was a lot of, you know, direct to consumer businesses through traditional retail, you know, like Gap and Land's End and stuff like that, that pivoted to the web in the late 90s. And that was direct to consumer, right? I mean, that was no different other than the digitally native. They started as traditional retailers that pivoted, but they were vertically integrated brands that were selling and using the same tactics in 1999 that Casper, Bonobos, et cetera, were using 10 years later. You know, the big difference is the digitally native part of it. And so I give a ton of credit to those companies that figured out ways to go after categories, you know, a dollar shave club taking on Gillette. Nobody would have thought whether it was e-commerce or retail of taking on Gillette, who had like 80, 90% market share, you know, selling mattresses over the internet was just, you know, no one had had really done that before. Warby Parker, you know, trying on glasses virtually and doing the try on at home, figuring out how to take products that Previously, people had thought of those just won't work online and figuring out how to make those work online. You know, to me, that was the true genius of kind of that wave of what people think of as, as the first kind of direct consumer businesses. But direct consumer today is very different because it's so much more prevalent that people sell online being direct to consumer is no longer a differentiator, right? After Casper started selling mattresses, there were like within a few years, a hundred businesses selling similar mattresses direct to consumer through e-commerce sites. And so, you know, the question that you have to ask more so now is direct consumer for you, part of your brand strategy or part of your channel strategy. I think a lot of people still think that direct consumer is their brand strategy. And today it's really more just part of their channel strategy. And you got to think about what your brand stands for. You got to think about what's going to differentiate you in the eyes of the consumer. And I would even go back to kind of that 2010 wave of direct consumer companies and say that what they did that was even more brilliant than pioneering selling razors over the internet was the brands that they built. You know, Dollar Shave Club embedded direct consumer in its brand, but they did it because they were going after Gillette, right? They were going after these overpriced razors that you have to go into a store to purchase and they're under lock and key and all of this stuff. So for them, being direct to consumer meant something. That was part of their DNA, right? Now it's just because we sell online, we're direct consumer, but that that doesn't mean anything. And, and the reality is, is COVID has moved us from 10% of stuff being online. I'm going to use grocery numbers here, but you know, 10% of stuff being online to 30% of stuff being online. Well, that still means that 70% of stuff is being sold in stores. So if you look at a lot of these direct consumer brands, they're now available. You know, Harry's is available in Target. So what does that tell your customers if you've built your brand DNA around being direct to consumer, and then all of a sudden now they find you in Target, there's 
there's something in the mind of the consumer that they have to then try to kind of figure out. And you can see this now in the, the consumer brands that are going on to great success and those that are struggling, right? And I won't call out names, but you know, if, if direct consumer was part of your DNA and that's no longer a differentiator, a lot of those brands are really struggling, right? But if you stood for something, right? Allbirds stood for something a lot more than direct consumer, right? And so they're different than any other shoe company in a lot of people's eyes, whether you buy them in a store through a third-party retailer, direct, you know, it means something to them. And so you have to first and foremost figure out whether direct consumer is a channel that enables you to get your product in the hand of the consumer, or is that a fundamental part of your, your brand DNA? Because the brand DNA is what's most important, right? It's what you're going you're gonna to make consumers feel that's going to cause them to buy. And most consumers don't look at a brand and say, I like that because it's D to C. They just don't, right? Consumers look at a brand and they say, that makes me feel good to buy it. It makes me feel good to wear it or to eat it. I like what they stand for. And by the way, it's available where I want to shop, which is why so many D2C brands have had to kind of pivot to being where the customers are. And so, look, I, I don't ever underestimate the power of direct consumer, um, especially when you're talking about digitally native and selling online, because a lot of direct consumer isn't online. You know, Warby Parker for a long time now has sold way more glasses in their stores than they do on, on their website. So there's huge power in, in being a direct consumer brand. But I remember back in the 90s when the, when the kind of the dot-com boom was going and you would just see company after company after company, the word then was disintermediation, right? And I had, I had one guy that I knew in the venture space that he was like, man, if one more person tell, calls me and says, my company is going to do a disintermediation of the janitorial supplies industry, I'm just going to, I'm going to be done. And it's like, you know, at a certain point, that stuff just isn't a differentiator anymore. And so you got to, you got to build a brand. You've got to build a brand that means something and differentiates you in the eyes of the customer or being digitally native or DTC, it's only going to carry you so far. And I'll, I'll just say one more thing, and then I'll get off my soapbox here is, is you know, D2C had in its in those earlier days had a, a connection to technology that blurred the lines between a consumer business and a tech business. And I think a lot of folks thought they were in a tech business because in those earlier days, you didn't have the tools, you didn't have the advanced Shopify platforms, and you had to do you had to be a tech person to make a lot of this stuff happen, but nobody was buying your product because you had good tech, right? They're buying your product because you had great products and a great brand. And so people kind of forgot what industry they were in. And so they started taking this tech startup approach to raising capital and spending money. And maybe, you know, having lived through .com 1.0, that it gave me a certain lens that people born, you know, a little bit later didn't have, you know, all of the massive flameouts of pets.com and webvan and all of that kind of stuff. But, you know, when I see these companies that are pre-revenue raising 5 to 10 million dollars on a 20 to 30 million dollar pre-money and you're like making a healthy chip or functional beverage, it's like this that's not the business you're getting into and that that more often than not is a recipe for failure 
Not that it doesn't work. I mean, there's exceptions to everything. You know, liquid death still mystifies me what's going on with that one. But the reality is, is that building a consumer business and a consumer brand is a much more methodical march, you know, incremental funding, focusing more on the P&L. And I can get into it a lot more as to why that's important, because it matters from a later funding and eventual exit perspective. But, you know, we're huge advocates of raising less and raising more incrementally when you're building a consumer brand, because otherwise you set these crazy expectations when you when you raise these big pre-seed rounds at massive valuations. And then people expect you to have, you know, growth curves like a SaaS or something like that. And then when you don't have them, the bottom kind of falls out, even if you've created a really cool brand and product. I've seen a lot of really cool brands that 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 ultimately don't make it just because of the way they've raised capital that was suited much more for the next Facebook versus the next skinny pop. I mean, so many threads to possibly pull on there. Uh, that <laughs> That is so insightful. I think one kind of follow-up question I had is it sounds like to me, at least from what I've been able to gather about, you know, kind of the state of DDC brands. Do you feel like there has been a movement? You've talked about the pivot where they realized they needed more brick and mortar operations. They needed to go where the customers are. And I think this plays into a little bit of what Shopify has been able to do uh, over the past 20 years. It's made it incredibly easy to stand up a direct to consumer brand or an e commerce business. But because of that, the barrier to entry has obviously drastically fallen. So it feels like for every one sort of away suitcase I see on Google, right below, there's like four knockoffs that are all basically trying to create the same exact product with the same value prop to the consumer. So do you think that the brick and mortar element helps brands kind of further establish their brand to consumers or the presence to consumers? Has that been a response to sort of the, the extreme level of competition or is that not really related to that? Well, certainly to a certain degree, it does because, right, the buyers for these retailers are the gatekeepers, right? And that's why direct-to-consumer e-commerce is so powerful is you can, if you can create a product, you can put it online and try to sell it and you can get feedback directly from your customers and you can maximize your margins. So again, it's a powerful, powerful channel. You know, I think that removing as much friction as possible is a great thing to have more entrepreneurs be able to get more stuff in the market and see what hits and and, and learn from it. So I, I think what Shopify has done is uh, is tremendous and, and I'm all for it and I'm all for entrepreneurs launching and trying and it's great. I think what people forget is that, you know, there's this eventuality of if I'm going to go to wholesale, my margins are going to get cut in half, right? And so the problem is, is that if when you're selling direct, you can get by with margins that'll never work for your business once you've taken direct as far as it'll go. And that's where a lot of these companies get tripped up is, you know, margin analysis is one talking about metrics. That's one of the fundamental things that we look at. Not only what's your margins today, but what's your bridge to get you where you want to be in terms of margins. And I love direct consumer because you can maximize your margin and you can do a bunch of really cool stuff with promos because you got a lot of wiggle room and all that. But there are these companies that feel like they're, they're really successful because they're, they're ramping up and their direct consumer margin is like in the teens. And they're able to, to raise a bunch of capital and get a bunch of sales 
And on paper, the, the revenue line looks awesome. It's this incredible growth story. But then once they either can't raise more capital or because eventually your investors want you to start being able to grow organically, right? Or they have to kind of change their mix to be into, into retail because, again, still 70% of products are purchased in stores. And then all of a sudden that margin gets cut in half and you're like, I can't make any money doing this. Right. And, and even worse is the, the, the brands. Okay. I will call one out like Casper, right. I mean, this is very readily available. And, and every time a company uh, files their S one, you should go read it. It's just, it's just, it's more interesting than any book that's ever written in my, in my, in my, uh, my world. Um, you know, Casper was losing money on every direct mattress they were selling. Right. And then all of a sudden now, they feel like they need to get into wholesale and, and, and raise their prices and all of this kind of stuff. So, you know, it's, it's the old, we'll make it up on scale routine that started with .com 1.0 that, that, you know, it works for a tech business because once you have the tech, you can just make copies of software or sign on new users and you have margins that can go to 90, 95% and all of that kind of stuff. But in consumer products, your margins don't scale with your business. You kind of tap out at you know 30 40 50% margin if you're in personal care maybe you can get it up in the 60s um but once you start having two thirds of your business going through wholesale and your margin gets kneecapped um and and you you just basically can't continue to raise capital um you know the wheels kind of come off and so that's why we spend a lot of money a lot of time um um looking at the kind of the gross margin story within a business. And we understand that at an earlier stage, it's not going to be ideal yet, but you got to know where you're going. And that's got to, it's got to work. The PL has got to work for the business. Eventually, you know, the business can't always be funding losses. Yeah. I think that's such an interesting dichotomy, the margin story between SaaS businesses and consumer businesses. And I do agree with you on the S1 thing. And I even think S1 teardowns, there are some really awesome S1 teardowns that get written, uh, usually about most uh, consumer companies, but sometimes there's some great ones on enterprise SaaS companies. So definitely recommend that as well to anyone who's interested. Jason, I'd love to, you know, with the remaining time left, I'd love to talk a little bit about your experience sort of being a consumer investor in Chicago, in the Midwest. In my mind, there's probably a good amount of benefits that come from being situated here. You know, some of the bigger consumer brand companies in the world uh, are in our backyard. But we just kind of love to hear your take on you know your experiences here in Chicago and the Midwest as a as a VC looking at consumer companies. Yeah, well, Chicago is a great place to be doing what we're doing. You know, as you said, there's a number of strategics in our backyard or in the Midwest, um, whether it's Chicago or Minneapolis or Omaha. You've got a wealth of acquirers of businesses. You've got a wealth of veterans of those crafts and Conagra's that kind of learned the CPG industry there and then went on to, to start you know, new CPG companies. So Chicago is, is fantastic in that respect. And I also would say that Chicago you know, has a really strong community from a consumer investor perspective. Um, you know, we are very collaborative. We um, work together on deals. Um, we have uh, uh, pitch nights and uh, panel events and um, all of this kind of wonderful stuff where, where we get together as a community. It, it actually really kind of started is we'd, we'd always see each other at the trade shows and be like, well, why do I have to go to Anaheim to a trade show to 
catch up with my friends from Chicago. So we just started getting together more in town and it's turned into over the last couple of years, just this really amazing community. So that's fantastic. I mean, we don't have a mandate to invest just in the Midwest, but if you look at our portfolio, it's very heavily weighted in the Midwest and in Chicago, um, just because of the strength of the community, the strength of the entrepreneurial activity, um, the fact that it's easier to invest in your backyard when you can meet with people in person. Um, and so, you know, there are other similar um, consumer communities. Um, you know, Boulder is an amazing one from a food and beverage perspective. Um, New York, San Francisco, um, some tremendous uh, uh, places where you could be building a consumer-focused uh, venture fund. But I, I, I certainly think that Chicago is is up there in the top markets where I would want to build this. Um, you know, it just so happens that I was here, uh, as was my business partner. Um, um, and so I'd like to say that we were smart and chose this as the ideal market. We just happened to be here and it happened to be a great market for doing what we're doing. So um, um, I credit the Chicago community for for a lot of the successes that we've had because it's it's strong. Jason, I want to thank you so much for coming on Chicago Capital. This has been a true blast. If people want to follow you or learn more about Company First, where should they go? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things we take a lot of pride in is that we've been very open with our contact info from the very beginning, you know, being kind of an upstart ourselves. Um, you know, we we put our email addresses on our website and um, we also created a link where people can just sign up for time on our calendar. So on our website is all my contact information. There's a Calendly link for people to pitch. Um, we don't require warm intros. Um, we have very much an open door uh, policy. So I encourage anybody that wants to talk, you know, if you go to the Calendly link, it does ask some questions like, you know, what products do you make and what retailers are you sold in just to kind of reinforce to folks what we focus on, because I don't want to waste anybody's time. I don't want to waste mine, but I also don't want to waste theirs. So if somebody's calling me with a SaaS, you know, uh, startup by answering those questions, they're going to realize that it's kind of not a fit. But I tell people all the time, just use that as a way to, to connect with us. Um, sometime right on my calendar because that way stuff doesn't get lost in the inbox. And, um, and I love to always love to connect with folks, even more so when COVID hit, you know, we, we, we always kind of had that link. And then when the trade show shut that shut down, we just kept putting that link out there in social media saying, if you, if you want to talk to us, just book some time, we'd be, be more than happy. I mean, that's what I'm here for is to, 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 to meet, folks that are building businesses and explore ways that we can be helpful. And so we, again, we want it to be as frictionless as possible. So all that information is on our website. Awesome. Jason, thank you so much for coming on Chicago Capital. Can't wait to do it again in the future. My pleasure. Thanks for doing this. This series that you do is awesome to see. And I've really enjoyed all the other podcasts that you've done and, and highlighting all, all the folks in our, our community. And it's just been great to see the evolution of venture in Chicago over the last 15 years. It's, it's really been quite a phenomenal story. And I'm just kind of proud to play a small part of it. Thanks so much. You know, compliments mean you're definitely getting invited back. That's how we operate here. Any small compliment, you're boom, you're on the invite list. Um, thanks so much, Jason. I can't wait to do this again. Take care. Thanks. Have a good one. <laughs>